Welcome to 10 Minutes on the IPCC Climate Change Report, a podcast from the Joint Public Issues team. My name is Hazel Lee and I'm one of the JPIT interns this year and joining me is Steve Hucklesby, one of our policy advisors. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Great to be with you. Brilliant. On the 20th of March, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released the AR6 synthesis report focused on climate change after their panel in Switzerland. Um, So now this report has really hit the headlines, I think it's fair to say, in the intervening days. So I think to start us off, Steve, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about the background of this report and what it might be saying. Yeah, sure. So you might ask, well, how is this report from the IPCC different from any other that has come um, before? What we're being told this time, this is the final warning from the IPCC Mm -hmm. for the globe to avert a 1.5 degree global warming. Um, these we need to act now. Global greenhouse emissions are going to have to fall by sixty percent uh, by twenty thirty five in order to safeguard this one point five degree global warming goal. Um, now, the action doesn't start, of course, at twenty thirty five. The final warning is because in order to achieve that, the peak needs to take place uh, in this year or next year. It needs to take place really soon, and. Uh, so we need to put processes in place uh, as of today. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder when we think about kind of the reports we've had over the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, what's usually the response from governments and maybe what should the response be? So governments um, more commonly find reasons why they can't take action rather than working out um, new ways in which they could take action Uh One of the messages that has come out from the UN Secretary General um, with the launch of this report is that we all need to take action on all all the fronts that we can. He says our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, Mm -hmm. everywhere, all at once. So we need to get beyond the situation where that we've had for the last few years, where government makes pledges, but their actions fall short of those pledges. We need yeah. to now find creative uh, solutions to reducing carbon emissions in all of the sectors uh, and not just passing the buck. Yeah, and I think the, there's this there's been this gap between the kind of pledges and the actual action, hasn't there, I guess, um, when yeah. we think about the Paris Agreement particularly as well. While we need action in all sectors, um, uh, one of the sectors most responsible for for, for that gap is the fossil fuel sector and Mm. energy systems and in particularly um, energy systems do need intervention from government you can't expect um, uh, that only to come from the individual choices that we make uh, in our homes yeah Uh, uh, this energy systems need some long-term planning incentivization Uh, and so that's um, one of the areas which we need to see movement uh, in the next cop uh, COP28, which will uh, take place in United Arab uh, Emirates at the end of this year. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, there's some good news in this as well. And that mm. is, of course, that renewable energy, um, it, it is uh, the report is saying, is tumbled in price. Uh, mm. So it's tumbled 85% uh, for in the case of solar energy and mm. uh, 55% in the case of wind energy since mm. 2010 uh, oh, yeah. so doing the right thing becomes economic 
we've talked a bit about in this um, podcast already a bit about kind of 1.5 degrees being this magic number of um, of global warming. Um, what would the impacts be, Steve, if ceiling wasn't met and we did exceed that 1.5 degree um, limit? Yeah, well, we do see climate disasters um, on the news with much more frequency these days. And that's mm. because um, 3 billion people across the world already live in areas that are highly vulnerable to climate breakdown and climate crisis. And obviously that is going to increase um, if we don't take uh, action and we are going to see those stories uh, on our news headlines with uh, I- increasing regularity. Uh, that has lots of implications for uh, local communities uh, whose uh, communities then become devastated by mm. uh, by hurricanes or uh, by by forest fire uh, and unfortunately many of these vulnerable communities these three billion people live in countries that don't have large resources of sovereign wealth um, and are mm-hmm. not able to build back so one of the things that we've been pushing for uh, with, uh, with from from our churches is for an international system of loss and damage. Um, and again, we're wanting to see uh, progress on that in the next COP summit at the end of this year. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've talked a bit about um, governments and um, what the governments need to do, what maybe kind of big corporations need to do. I wonder, Steve, if there's there's any point in us doing anything um in the in our communities or in our own personal lives um which will make a difference to um the climate crisis absolutely going back to um antonio guterres's point um Mm. everything everywhere all at once uh that involves us as well yeah i think that we can't escape these days the fact that um in order to achieve uh sustainable living we're going to need to look at our own lifestyle choices um i think for uh some of us it's going to mean difficult uh questions around flying to go away on holiday mm. um uh that is a big source of carbon uh emissions uh but we need to look at this across the board so i think that we're coming to that sort of uncomfortable realization I think in the face of of some quite difficult news, I wonder if you've seen any particular sources of hope, um, Steve, in in the face of of the climate crisis recently. Yeah, there's been a really great uh, news story breaking today. Um, Mm. And that is that the United Nations has asked the International Court of Justice to prepare what's called an advisory opinion on uh, countries' legal obligations to fight climate change. Um, this has been brought about by um, initially by a bunch of students uh, in wow. Fiji, uh, international law students, mm-hmm. um, who proposed that uh, um, United Nations should decide that there ought to be a, a legal obligation uh, for countries to take action. Um, and this came to the United Nations yesterday. It was supported by more than 130 countries. It was supported uh, by the United Kingdom, uh, but not by the United States. That's mm-hmm. quite an issue because um, Biden in the last few days has made uh, um, a few pronouncements on new oil and gas pipelines, mm-hmm. um, uh, both in Canada to the United States um, and also in 
the Gulf of Mexico. Um, countries need to understand this not just as a moral responsibility uh, to take action, but also in the future as a legal responsibility. As far mm. as the UK is con uh, concerned, we have uh, accepted the principle of legal responsibility with the introduction of the Climate Act um, quite some time ago, 2006. Mm. Um, and we were one of the uh, groups within the UK asking for that legal uh, responsibility to be recognised. So our government has a legal obligation to take the put in place the necessary policies to avert climate change. Mm. Yeah, again, kind of looking to, to overcome that gap we talked about between pledges and action. Um, and I wonder how we can kind of institute these, instigate these changes on a kind of local or personal level through um, yeah. perhaps through the work of JPIT. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the the encouraging parts of that story was that this initiated from uh, a group of uh, students in Fiji, mm -hmm. um, and four years on uh, has come to international action. So we should never underrate the um, capacity that we have as individuals um, uh, gathering together in a uh, as a group of people um, mm. to achieve something big. Yeah, but. I mean, more practically on a local level, we've talked about this gap between national pledges uh, and action. Uh, and I think that maybe we are in a situation now where we're looking at closing that gap, mm. not just through protest, but also through action at the local level. Um, so we can achieve net zero not by putting all of that responsibility on the shoulders of our political leaders, uh, but we can achieve that also within our churches, uh, within our neighbourhoods. Um, our three churches are all committed to achieving net zero by 2030. Mm. We have a programme of in, in JPIT of net zero my neighbourhood, which looks at setting up a dialogue with local councillors and with other groups in the community to work out how and plans are put in place practically within our local communities so that we achieve end up being net zero communities and there's real power as christians about thinking about that idea of net zero isn't there yes there is and i think that we come at this also from you know from a, a, a biblical standpoint mm -hmm. and a theological standpoint there's been a lot of emphasis i think in the last few years around biblical um invocations around justice um, that's uh, empowered us within the climate justice movement. Yeah. But when we're looking at net zero, maybe we need to go back again to stewardship principles of stewardship um, applied locally and globally. Mm. Uh, because net zero, I think, is a really powerful concept. It's about being able to flourish as individuals and as families to carry about on our daily lives in a situation where we are not degrading the creation which God has gifted mm -hmm. uh, to us or rather uh, entrusted to us. Net zero is, is, an, is an arrival point, um, yeah. I think, uh, which is more in keeping, if you like, with the Genesis story.
Wonderful. I think that's a nice place to end. Um, if you'd like to hear more from the Joint Public Issues team, you can go to our website at jpit.uk or jpit.uk. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram from, for updates from the team and our work. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it around with anyone you think might be interested. Thank you for listening.